you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little show, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, before we get started, let me just uh, talk a little bit again about our Patreon page. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, then uh, and you'd like to see us keep going and keep remaining as ad-free as possible, then please consider becoming a patron of our show. Go to patreon.com slash Island. It's five bucks a month to sign up. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. And I uh, was having uh, internet disaster on Tuesday night. Couldn't get that chat going until about 10 minutes into the show, which is very disappointing um, because the chat is like my favorite part of this whole thing. And let me say a huge uh, thank you to our new patron, Harry. Harry, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to the Diggin' Oak Island family. It's great to have you. Again, folks, go to patreon.com slash Oak Island to sign up and support the show. Remember, it's only five bucks a month. You can cancel any time. And also, if you prefer not to do the monthly thing, and I get that, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. I'm a musician. That's my job when I'm not podcasting. And that's kind of my virtual tip jar that we uh, set up during the pandemic. Uh, so you can always use that to make a one-time donation. Thanks to everyone who's done that. Obviously, there was no new episode of The Curse of Oak Island last week. That's why there was no podcast. Um, And also what we had in place was one of these Maddie Blake behind the scenes things. I know a lot of people watch that. I watched it too. Not much to say there. I don't really, I'm not, listen, I always, I probably shouldn't take the time to throw out a criticism here because I always get accused of being too critical, but uh, it's just not my thing. Seeing Maddie Blake uh, try to metal detect just isn't very exciting to me. I, I don't, I don't, it's cool to see the guys and to see what's going on. And it's nice to get a reminder of how much time and efforts put into this, not the search so much as put into the show. Um, and it also shows you kind of all the hands involved and there's a part of it with all the editors and stuff sort of buying, acting like they're buying into the narratives of all this, that kind of off putting to me, I think a little bit, um, you know, they kind of seem to approach it to us more as a drama than what we would like it to be, which is sort of more of a documentary. Um, so I'm kind of turned off a little bit by it. But I know a lot of people love that stuff, and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, again, I'd rather watch an hour like that than almost anything else. It's Oak Island content. I'm all in. You know, <laughs> It's just not my favorite thing. So that's why we didn't have a podcast last week, because there really isn't much to talk about there. So let's start off today's podcast like we usually do with emails and messages from you guys, the listeners. Let's start off with our friend and the new aforementioned patron, Harry, who writes, Hi, Dave. Great podcast. I have a theory for you on Samuel Ball, Stone Wharves, the Royal Navy, and Scurvy. Thinking about Nova Scotia, Cod, Cabbage. I think that aside from other suppositions, apparently there were two guys from New York running a salt operation. Cabbage plus salt equals sauerkraut. It's high in vitamin C, and I wouldn't be surprised if his success might have been as a provisioner for the Royal Navy, plus salt cod. I think he probably could have been providing them with barrels of sauerkraut. He also could have been the front man for a local fisherman providing the salt cod, and he could have been their agent. 
Salt cod also was a huge food source for the slaves and the sugar plantations for merchant ships to bring to the tropics. The Grand Banks, as we know, had big shoals of cod. Portuguese used to fish there. This doesn't explain much about treasure, but Ball could very well have made a good living by it, as we all know about government contractors. <laughs> Ball could have offered them a better price. The Navy could have built the wharves to accommodate multiple ships stopping there and loading up, perhaps a bit like a roadside farmstead for those ships on the way to no in and out of Nova Scotia. It was always in barrels, a ship of the line with a crew of a few hundred men rolling in from a long cruise up from the south after eating all the fresh fruit and vegetables from, say, Jamaica, would have to load up before returning to England. Also, careening a ship to clean the bottom could have, could have used the boulderless beach to maintain the ships there. I don't know if the beach is big enough, it is, or if the rocky beach is appropriate to do so a bit coming up from the tropics, but there would have there would be a huge hula skirt of weed growing out on the ship's bottom. This is true. It could have very well have been the stopping at a, it could have very well been like stopping at a gas station on a trip to grab stuff before the last leg of their trips. Canada had a great straight pine trees, which the Navy sought to stock up on spars. The shipyards were in Halifax, but it might have been a convenient to go to Ball's Tar and Kraut Stand rather than hanging around a busy port. Ball could have just taken ox carts loaded with hundreds of barrels of sauerkraut and just sold them from the wharves. As for barrels, like our propane tanks or six-gallon water bottles, one ship just leaves their empties with Sam to load up for the next buyer. Tar for caulking the deck seams and tarring the rigging. Sailors were called tars or jack tars. Just a theory. Sorry it's so long. Feel free to summarize in your own eloquent way. I'm not that eloquent. Uh, the idea covers some possibilities for Samuel Ball. He obviously wasn't stupid. Harry. No, Harry. That last sentence is the part that always annoys me the most about the way the narration presents Samuel Ball to us. The implication that they always give us, and I say this time and time again, and I will always repeat it because it bothers me so much, is that Samuel Ball must have found a treasure because how else could he have been so successful? And then for some equally mysterious reason, they often way over exaggerate his wealth and his possible wealth, calling him the one of the wealthiest men in Nova Scotia, which is just nonsense, you know, um, and, and also patently false. I just wish that rather than pushing rumors and conjecture uh, that someone on the show actually tries to find out more about Samuel Ball and the incredible life he must have led. I've read a lot about him in recent years, and while I can't give you all the answers um, because his, his business is not documented, doesn't mean it's mysterious, just means undocumented. He didn't leave anything behind by that stuff other than he was a farmer. So um, your theory about what he was farming is actually really good. And there's been a lot of people who have mentioned cabbage farming as part of Samuel Ball's uh, riches and why he was continuing to buy up lots of land, you know, to have more farm space on an island with great access to ships coming in and out of Nova Scotia, not because he was buying land to protect the treasure he found or something like that. You know, you see what I'm saying? I've read a lot about him. I can't give you all the answers. What I can tell you is the first place I would look to find reasons for why he succeeded under such difficult conditions would be Samuel Ball's brain and his heart, and not some imagined connection to a money pit or possible treasures. No matter what the narration says, there's absolutely no reason at this point to believe that Samuel Ball found a treasure in the money pit, or was somehow connected to somebody else who did. 
But if you did actually believe that, wouldn't the correct course be to prove that theory so you don't have to keep digging? Because what you're saying is he found it and spent it, right? So why are we digging if that's what we think? See where I'm going here, right? On many levels, this Samuel Ball found the treasure and that's why he was so rich theory just doesn't make a lot of sense. And Harry, like I said, your theories are all sound. And I'll tell you there are many out there who believe along these very same lines and are also researching these kinds of theories about him. In my mind, the more and more they find quote-unquote evidence that seems to point to undocumented activity over the course of centuries, the treasure narrative itself gets less and less likely. I mean, if this is all because someone buried a treasure on the island, then come on. That didn't take centuries to do, right? I mean, am I making sense with this? If all these artifacts were related to the hiding of a vast treasure then everything mysterious found in the island would date to at least a somewhat similar time frame. Instead, we have dates all over the darn place, the 12th century all the way to the 18th. How can that be possible? You see what I mean? Anyway, Harry, great stuff. Keep those ideas coming. want to hear from you again. Now, with all that in mind, let's hear from Marie on the Patreon who wrote, does anyone else think there could have been more than one deposit over the centuries by different groups? And could Apple Island next to Oak Island have been a place where people settled so as to not leave their mark on Oak Island? And regarding the money pit, how many years do you think it took to bring in the resources necessary to do the construction? The amount of man hours it took to create such a hiding place is mind-boggling. And that first hook they found a couple of weeks ago, it was supposed to be used to lift very heavy objects, which told me that there had to be several men involved in hauling and lifting those heavy objects. The Templars, perhaps? I just joined this group, so if any of, if, if any of my questions are redundant, I apologize, but I would like to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Marie, these are all great questions. Uh, I, I would say this. That is one, if not the only way, one can support a treasure narrative that, that includes all these different dates. But if I'm being honest and I'm answering the question you're answering, man, that just seems really far-fetched to me. I mean, who would do that and why, right? You got to answer that, at least for me to buy into thinking about a theory. I think that's where you would need to begin with this idea. What organization existed for seven centuries, from the 12th century or whatever the first one was, up to the 18th century, and also had the means, the knowledge, and the resources to cross the Atlantic to, for many of those years, uncharted lands to bury a, a treasure and then, you know, that might never be able to be retrieved, but yet they did anyway, right? Or they deposited more into it or took some out. You know, how, who could have done that and who could have kept all that knowledge of that treasure and that mission or missions secret and safe for all these centuries? I would say it like this. Is it possible? Sure. But I think there are way more possible explanations that this is, uh, you know, for this widening time frame here. Right. I think it was Arthur Conan, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, who said, when uh, everything that's possible is eliminated, then you can bring in the impossible or the improbable, right? I don't think we've eliminated all the possible yet to go to something as improbable as this. Anyway, great stuff, Marie. No question is redundant or not worth discussing. There are 
always new people to Oak Island and always new people to this podcast. And I absolutely love the chance to go back and go over these kinds of things again because they're always interesting. It's always nice to sort of update what you think about this stuff. I mean, a couple of years ago, Samuel Ball was shrouded in mystery for almost all of us. And over the last couple of years, between the work of Laird Niven and some of the things that's being done and some of the research that we've been able to do, we've kind of moved away some of that fog, not all of it, but some of it, to find a guy who is extraordinary. Uh, you know, and that's just one example. So it's always nice to go back into these things. So thank you so, so much. Um, there, again, it's always a new set of eyes and ears to all this. I'd love to hear what you guys think. You could tell my voice isn't great. I had laryngitis the last couple of weeks, <clears throat> which I often get. So I'm sorry. You guys got to stick with me on this one. A lot of coughing and clearing my throat and stuff. Anyway, let's turn now to Jim who writes, Hi, Dave. I've been watching The Curse of Oak Island for years, but just stumbled on your podcast. See what I mean? What was I just saying? Nice work. Just a comment on the discussion of gold in the water. I believe that gold doesn't decompose or deteriorate. So even assuming there's gold hidden underground, what's the assumption here? That's That the hidden gold is somehow leaching into the water? It doesn't make sense to me. Thanks and good work, Jim. Jim, that is what has been stuck in my craw about this for weeks now. And I know I've talked about it, but I want to mention it for you. I just want them to answer one simple question. If this gold is being detected because there is a, to use their words, quote unquote, Gerhardt dump truck load of treasure down there, how exactly is this detection even possible? Listen, I'm not an expert. I'm really asking here, right? If I place a treasure chest full of gold and silver down at the bottom of a 100-foot hole, heck, if I place a treasure chest full of gold and silver in my swimming pool in the backyard, <laughs> right? And as far as I know, the gold doesn't disintegrate or slough away, would I be able to detect that gold's presence in the swimming pool water? And if so, how could I do that? Now, let's make that into a treasure chest full of gold and silver at the bottom of a hundred foot hole in some place we don't even know. <laughs> Can we detect the water hundreds of yards away or dozens of yards away? I don't know, right? Am I wrong about this? Am I missing something here? Again, I'm seriously asking these questions. I'm not doubting the people who are saying that the gold is being found. I just don't know the answers. I just wish they would discuss this subject on the show and clear it up a little bit so we can get a better understanding of what's going on and we could stop doubting it because they are putting doubt in our minds by not explaining what this could all mean. I want to start getting excited about this, but I can't because I'm stuck thinking in my head the only way this we could be detecting this is if there's gold already naturally in this water, which I think there is evidence to believe there is. I'm just really confused, Jim, and obviously you are too. Thank you for that question. Let's hear now from Adrian who writes, Dave, Adrian in the UK here, absolutely love your podcast, just found it online and have caught up to the latest. Again, a new listener, so we always like to talk to new listeners about whatever they have in mind, whatever questions we might have answered years ago. Adrian, thank you for joining us. I'm up to the same episode as your listeners, so I've seen season 10, episode 17, The Well. My view is that did is that did the well get filled in to stop people from coming onto that property and maybe seeing other potential works, or did the well become unusable when the swamp was created between the two islands? 
All right, let me stop here and interject. Um, the swamp or these uh, or these small wetlands that we see here in this area around the well and not the swamp, right, <laughs> that we're more familiar with. This, These little wetlands here, just from looking at it, I'm not an expert, they appear to me to have been created, to use your phrase, mostly when the road was built, right? That's what it looks like to me from these images. The thing is that this road was built in the 20th century, uh, it would also appear that this well was already not in use for quite some time when the road was built in the 20th century. So am I making sense in answering your questions here? As far as the actual quote unquote swamp goes, that is a spring fed feature with natural, um, you know, fresh water and some brackish that comes in because of its proc proximity to the ocean. Um so it was probably created, again, in quotes, millions of years ago when the spring came to the surface. And then it was greatly altered and likely enlarged significantly with the construction of this road, which cut the freshwater off from the beach uh, and the ocean and keeping it into this sort of swampy thing. Uh, and again, you have to keep in mind that at this time, the swamp was not part of the treasure narrative that was really left at the money pit. So uh, you see where I'm going here. Anyway, Adrian continues. With the stones in the wall being investigated for potential hand working, I have a memory of the time they started digging below the tree when they first found the stone structures that had been hidden. Did anyone else see that apparently work stone in the hole that was not mentioned? I think episode 10 Rick's statement, no straight lines in nature. Work stones in excavation on lot five. Anyone else see the work stone I attach on the screenshot? Sorry if going back a bit, Adrian. Adrian, thank you. Going back is great. And folks, I'm going to post this screenshot he's talking about on our Facebook page, and you guys can have a look. Adrian, I know the common refrain here is that there is no straight lines in nature, but stones do split. And they do split naturally, causing what could look, if you're seeing it at the right angle, a straight line. Again, I'm by no means an expert. And as uh, far as I know, uh, this splitting of stones was a fairly common occurrence during glacial movements of the last ice age. And also, I don't think anyone is disputing this structure is possibly man-made. That's what the archaeologists seem to think, right? And, and who are we to disagree with actual experts who have seen this thing firsthand? The question is, what is it? What does it have to do with buried treasure on the money pit, if anything at all? Adrian, if I'm misunderstanding some of your questions, just write me back and I'll do the best I can. And maybe I can even drop a line to uh, to a geologist or something for you and get you more answers. Um, just that look to me on the screenshot doesn't necessarily mean a worked stone. It means a stone that's split. And I know that happens in nature. Great stuff, my friend. Thank you for listening. And thank you for contributing to the podcast. Anyway. That's it for the emails and messages this week. If you have any questions or comments you would like to have answered on a future podcast, just send them along, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. It is time now to discuss Season 10, Episode 18 of The Curse of Oak Island called A Quadrilateral Move. Now, we only have really two locations to discuss today, Lot 13 that, and the stone wall over at Lot 26. There are also a couple of scenes from the money pit, but really nothing that much at all to talk about. The episode started off with Craig Tester checking in on the garden shaft, which apparently had progressed down to, I think he said, 67 feet. 
And then later on the show, we see Craig, and, and this time he's joined by Rick Lagina, speaking with the guy from the Dumas Construction Company, the company digging out the garden shaft, about the probing project. It's a similar discussion we've had in recent episodes. Doesn't seem like anything has been found, and it's still moving forward. Uh, so there's not really a whole lot to report on the money pit. Not today, at least. Seems like they're holding this towards the end of the season. So let's go over and talk again about the stone wall on Lot 26. Now, I believe the last time we checked in on Lot 26, we had done some dating on a tree that's growing out of the wall, and we saw the archaeologists, Miriam Amaral and Laird Niven, pull out a piece of charcoal from the, the wall structure. Now, we're going to get to that charcoal in just a second and what it means. But before we do that, there is a war room meeting related to the wall, and it involves a man named Francisco Nogairo. Now, I'm not going to try to pronounce it in the Portuguese because I'm absolutely terrible like at that, so we'll just say Mr. Nogairo. Uh, he is one of Rick Lagina's European researchers. Now, remember, back at the end of, I think, last season, Rick said that the fellowship, the team, he and his brother and Craig had hired or employed, basically, in some way, shape, or form, a group of researchers in Europe who would start digging more into the many theories about Oak, the Oak Island treasure that involve European suspects, you know, people like the Knights Templar, the British Navy, the Spanish explorers, et cetera, et cetera. Mr. DeGairo is Portuguese and is looking into the connections between the many possible Portuguese suspects, including various explorers and fishermen and that kind of thing, and also the Templars and any of the possible Templar-related organizations that came later on, specifically the Order of Christ, who we have talked about quite a bit. So um, basically, the long and short is the French king and the pope put the word out to disband and arrest all of the Templars. The Portuguese king at the time basically refuses to do so, uh, offers safe harbor to any of the Templars in Portugal, and I guess some fled there as well. They disbanded the name, the Knights Templar, and reformed under something called the Order of Christ years later. That's who they are. They explain that just to kind of give it, it's going to come back in a bit, right? So Mr. Nagairo says he believes that the rock wall, from the photos he's seen of it, is of Portuguese origin. Not a lot of info is provided here as to why he believes this. There's some talk about the method used to build it and how the Portuguese were the only ones to build things that way. But honestly, the show offered very little proof of that in my mind. There's no comparisons to similar walls built in this method in Portugal or and whatever time frame or in any other such method built by somebody else to give us sort of a distinguishing you know, characteristics from one to the other. And I think it's also important to remember his expertise is, as far as I know, not in this field. And if it is, it's not really explained what his expertise is. If you recall a couple of weeks ago, another person, the guy, the tree guy, the guy who claimed, or the guy who uh, helped date the tree growing out of this wall, he claimed to know a lot about these sorts of things. And he compared its construction to a castle, which I believe he said from the British Isles, from Scotland or England. So while I'm always open to opinions here, I think I would just like a little more convincing of one of these two things before I get wrapped up into this idea that the wall was built by the Portuguese. But nonetheless, Nagairo's conclusion here is that this wall is evidence of what he refers to as like Portuguese presence on Oak Island. 
and then launches into a theory involving a treasure that apparently vanished during what is called the Portuguese War of Succession. Now, the show does a good job of explaining a little of what that is, but for those who don't watch the show, there are plenty of listeners who only listen to the podcast, believe it or not, don't watch the show. Let me just explain it again here for you uh, a little more in depth. It's the late 1580s, and it is a time of Portuguese expansion, right? And in this time, Portugal had been fighting a long conflict with Morocco for a for territory it wanted to occupy there because, you know, I mean, it's just right across from Gibraltar. So they were sort of expanding their reach into uh, that territory. King Sebastian I, who I believe was all of 21 at the time and with no children, led his Portuguese army into Morocco and met the Moroccan army at the Battle of, I think it's called Alcacer Kaibir, but I'm sure I'm butchering that name, on August 4th, 1578. Now for Portugal... And for Mr. Sebastian, the battle was a complete and total catastrophe. The army was routed. The king was killed, leaving Portugal with no direct heir to sit the throne. So the next man up in the order of succession was the king's great uncle. He was the cardinal Henry I, who then became king. So as a result of this, Henry renounced his religious obligations and then petitioned the Pope to release him from his vow as a cardinal so that he could then marry and have children so that there is an heir to his throne, something they just basically got lucky with before, right? But the Pope refused his request. So when Henry dies a couple of years later, Portugal was left with no ruler. As a result, and as often happens in times like this, a parade of dukes, duchesses, and even the king of Spain lined up and eventually went to war over who would become the next ruler of Portugal. Now, the story Mr. Nagairo tells involves one of these claimants, a man named Antonio, the prior of Crato, I believe is the word they use. Um, and he proclaimed himself king in the summer of 1850. But Antonio was defeated in this war and apparently fled Portugal with a truckload of treasure that, according to Nagairo, disappeared. The theory is that he gave this treasure to the Order of Christ, who were friendly to Antonio's cause, and they scurried it off to Nova Scotia to hide it on Oak Island. Now, there's a few things here. One, uh, there's no proof that he gave anything to the Order of Christ or that the Order of Christ took it anywhere. But be that as it may... Uh, this podcast has its very own man in Portugal, our friend Lionel, a very smart listener to the show who has written us a lot about Portuguese history and about how some of these Oak Island things relate to Portugal. He wrote us the very next day, and he told a very different story. Now, Lionel also talked about the stone wall, which we're going to talk about more in the next podcast. We'll bring the rest of that email in for that. But here's what he had to say specifically about this supposed lost treasure. He wrote, what made me most curious is the way a lost treasure was associated in the show with the prior of Crato, the unsuccessful claimant to the Portuguese throne in 1580. Well, he did rule for 20 days as Antonio I, he says, <laughs> because we know of his life and destiny, even English language Wikipedia and Britannica have entries on him. Now, only stop here. Here is the info Lionel sent, which I believe is from Encyclopedia Britannica. It reads like this. He fled to France, carrying with him crown jewels, which included many valuable diamonds. He was well received by Catherine de Medici, 
who had a claim of her own on the crown of Portugal and looked upon him as a convenient instrument to be used against Philip II. By promising to cede the Portuguese colony of Brazil to her and by the sale of part of his jewels, Antonio secured means to fit out a fleet manned by Portuguese exiles and French and English adventurers. As the Spaniards had not yet occupied the Azores, he sailed to them, but was utterly defeated at sea. He finally came to England. Elizabeth favored him for much the same reasons as Catherine de Medici. In 1589, the year after the Armada, he accompanied the English expedition under the command of Drake and Norris to the coast of Spain and Portugal. His remaining diamonds were disposed of by degrees. The last and finest was acquired by M. de Sancy, who, from whom it was purchased by Sully and included in the jewels of the crown. During his last days, he lived as a private gentleman on a small pension given him by Henry IV, and then died in Paris on the 26th of August, 1595. And Lionel finishes by saying, quote, Basically, he spent the fortune over the years, particularly the diamonds, trying to conquer the throne and failing. Kind regards, Lionel. Thank you so, so much, my friend, for doing the research for me. Our own Portuguese researcher coming in again with the goods for us. So now here's the thing. And here's what you all must be thinking now, right? Mr. Nagairo simply must know this. Or he wouldn't be much of a researcher, right? He must know at least as much as Wikipedia, right? So what is he talking about here? Is there a different treasure he's theorizing? Does he have some other information that we didn't get to see? That's the problem with these war room crackpot sessions, these theorist sessions, right? Mr. Nagairo is probably on the video call with these guys for hours, and we just get a few short minutes. So much is left on the cutting room floor, sometimes it's not possible to know exactly what it is his theory is really all about. So until we learn more, I think Lionel just debunked this theory pretty quickly, right? Because this is the information we have. Yes, he did have a treasure. And he did spend it. And we kind of know who he spent, where he spent it. It's similar to the crown jewels, I think, of France, which was a long-held theory uh, by many people of what could be in Oak Island uh, that, we, oh, that we also now can find all of those jewels, right? It's similar to that. But you would think Mr. Nagaira would know this. It's very strange. Now, later in the show, we have another war room meeting about this rock wall. And it's about a piece of charcoal I mentioned earlier that the archaeologists found last week. Craig Tester has the carbon dating, and it says 1474 to 1638. So if we accept that this charcoal properly dates the wall's age, or at least tells us that it is at least that old, then it certainly does predate people like Samuel Ball and other farmers and residents of, the Oak, of Oak Island that we know about. This is all fascinating stuff, but of course I have a question or two. Laird says during this meeting that walls like this are generally built for agricultural purposes, and he seems to recognize the construction used. So does Laird think it is unique to Portugal? And also, if these were walls built for agricultural purposes, exactly what use would it be for someone trying to bury a treasure? Are we also saying the Portuguese Order of Christ came here, buried a treasure, and then farmed for a while? You see where I'm going with all this, right? It's yet another strange thing that's with a weirdly old date and just doesn't seem to make any darn sense. (laughs) 
So now let's finish off with lot 13. This is, if I'm not mistaken, part of Fred Nolan's old property, now owned by his son, Tom. Tom has his father's old book, which he's mentioned a couple of times in recent weeks, um, which never got published. And he tells the guy about something, again, that was mentioned earlier, a 32-foot-long boulder field that his father discovered back in 1993, which he called the quadrilateral. Again, we mentioned this stuff last week. Um, Tom has had the team looking for a few things that are in this book, so now we're going to go to this quadrilateral. So the guys head out to Lot 13 on the north side of the island with Billy Gerhardt and his big digger. They find some pieces of burnt wood, at least indicating some human activity, which isn't all that unusual. But Gary Drayton then says that the wood reminds him, for whatever reason, of some pieces of wood found in the stone road in the swamp. This then sends the narration into another lengthy recap of the swamp and the stone road and all that goes along with that. So now while searching, they also find some blue clay. There's no more on that wood, by the way. Um, they find some blue clay, what they call blue clay, in the ground around these rocks, which has everyone kind of intrigued since blue clay was found both in the swamp and famously in the money pit. They bring in Terry Matheson, a geologist, mind you, to have a look. Now, why do I say it like this? Well, I think Steve on the Patreon said it best when he remarked, wow, actually use the geologist to answer questions, finally. <laughs> That's right, Steve. They almost never do this. How many times have they found rocks or clay or these kinds of things and don't ask the darn geologist who if we're to believe the show is only a few hundred yards away well i think the answer is that he isn't always there for one thing that no matter what the show makes us believe but also the answer might be in what we didn't see here terry gets down in the hole he looks around for uh, for obviously more than the 15 seconds or so that we saw and the only thing we get to hear him say was quote, seems a little bit similar to what we're seeing in the money pit. And that's it. Terry, if you want to have more screen time, maybe a mention of the Templars or something like that, or a safe anything, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just having a little fun here. Anyway, next on the list to have a look at this clay is Dr. Ian Spooner. Now, he comes in and says it doesn't seem natural, so he gets a lot more airtime, right? He calls it, quote, disturbed clay and out of place. Now, if Spooner is correct, this is certainly strange. During his time looking, Spooner also pulls out a large ground uh, out of the ground a large iron what looks like a staple. Uh, they show it to Carmen Leg, and Karma and Emma Culligan believe that it is quote unquote older, though no date given. And Carmen says that it would have been used uh, in something of a pulley system. It's interesting, but not much proof in anything here, so I'm not really sure what it means um, other than somebody was using a pulley system over here. Makes all the sense in the world to me. So let's go back to the clay again before we wrap things up here. If Spooner is correct, if this clay truly is out of place, then that would indeed be interesting. But it brings up two things I think are worth kind of talking about. <laughs> One, is it really out of place? Like I said, we've already found something similar in the money pit and the swamp. So if someone was using that clay... There must be a source on the island and therefore might not be, this might not be unnatural, right? Or out of place at all because I had to get it from somewhere. So I contacted a geologist, Gordon Fader, who is the co-author of the book Oak Island Mystery Solved. Now, to be open and honest, for those of you who don't know who Gordon is, he is a friend of the podcast and is what I like to call a treasure skeptic. He believes that something lost to history 
occurred on Oak Island centuries ago, but that it has nothing to do with treasure, right? And nothing to do with a treasure 100 feet down. You'll have to read his book to find out what that something is. But like I said, he is a geologist who's been studying geology of Oak Island for years and years. So he's a good guy to ask. Actually, he's a great guy to ask. And here is what he thinks of the clay. He wrote, it is really not blue clay. It is gray. It occurs all over the region and especially in the swamp and at the money pit in many of the boreholes where it has been called puddled clay and up to 20 feet thick. It is not puddled. That is worked for pottery or china. It's very natural. It lies on the top of the limestone and gypsum in many places in Nova Scotia. The treasure site of Nolan was on his maps, and he dug it down to 11 feet where he drilled a hole. It said on his map that the treasure was at 80 feet below. Then he filled it in. So clay found on the show at four feet had to probably just be fill. But there often are clay lenses in the till as the glaciers that made the drumlins flowed over and eroded these materials. Many have known about the quadrilateral for a long time, but not really what Fred found there. It certainly shows that he had the capacity to dig large holes and move heavy boulders. He dug up very large areas of his land. I have evidence that he moved at least three of the cross large boulders, so it is not old. The clay needs to be studied for its origin, properties, and age. Microfossils in it could be dated and the environment understood. So there you go. Another perspective on this that makes a lot of sense. Now, I said two things came to mind. So the second is, where does, if we are to believe that this is an unnatural boulder field, where and when, just like the stone wall, what does this have to do with a treasure? I asked this question on the Patreon, and Ernest, one of our patrons, replied, makes me wonder what kind of talks going on behind the scenes. Do they strongly believe there could be a hidden entrance tunnel? Ernest... I love your positivity and your hopefulness here, and I don't want to rain on your parade, but let me just say it like this. I think there are many, many conversations that go on off camera, and there probably were quite a few about this very feature. But to put it nicely, I think those conversations were probably very different than what you're thinking they might have been about. That's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. Uh, if you think the show's worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you would like to help out the podcast in another way, then you could do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. And a big thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star rating already. I really, really do appreciate that. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Thank you for the kind words. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Diggin' Oak Island. Uh, and if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email uh, or direct message. Um, at uh, The email is diggin'oakisland at gmail.com. Direct message on either of those social media platforms. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or direct message on social media, I'm probably going to answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read and answered aloud, just make a note of that. I'll do my best to get back to you on email, but it may take a couple of days because I'm really kind of focusing in on the show when I'm doing this stuff. So uh, again, just make a note of that for me and I'll do my best. So until we meet again, it's crown time. <laughs> I'm Dave McBride. 
Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.